Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're returning to the book of Hebrews today just for, for one week. We're going to do something a little bit different uh, next week in acknowledgement of MLK Day and Sanctity of Life Sunday. But today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we love you, and we just thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, each and every week we need, as your word calls us to, to gather together so that we can uh, hear from your word and then respond in worship. And that's not a futile exercise, but that's how our souls are filled. That's how our souls are made right as we realign ourselves with you. Lord, I pray that uh, to that end, that as we just sung, that we would celebrate you seated on your throne. You're seated on your throne, as it says in Hebrews 10. And Lord, I pray that we would celebrate that. I pray that we would believe it. I pray that we would turn to you for help in our present time of need. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that uh, we would exalt you and worship as a result of it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be in our midst today and giving us eyes to see what we can't see on our own. I pray that your spirit would be in our midst, giving us faith and trust in you in, in ways that we're not. I pray that he would be here convicting us of sin and turning us back to you. Lord, do a good work in ways that only you can do. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would say uh, nothing out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, who do you trust for the truth? Th throughout history, people have always used priests uh, to uh, find truth. Historically, if you think back, the Native Americans or the, the Greek city-states or the ancient Near East or even the African tribes, they all had priest or shaman or some sort of religious class that was kind of the go-between between, between people and, and the deity. They, they were always these ones that you could turn to for truth, to, to how to be whole or how to be right with God. Of course, today our culture is uh, drifting in a different direction. There's kind of this secular push, right? In fact, the data shows that uh, the, the, those who claim to be atheists, that's actually the, the, if you look at our culture religiously, that's the percentage of people that's on the rise the fastest, and they certainly uh, have the most uh, political influence. Most people in America fall in kind of a, a deistic camp, which deism is kind of this idea that maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. The great era of deism is there, there's an apathy towards God and an apathy towards spiritual things. Today, there's kind of a psychological, uh, uh, psychologized wrapping of deism called moral therapeutic deism. But that's probably where most people are. And so most people today don't look to religious leaders as priests. However, atheists and deists, they still have some sort of religion and they still have certain people they look to for truth. So even a secular society has a priest class. For example, if you're a really political person, then, then politics is your religion, and, and your priest are those politicians or, or those news figures that you really believe in. If you're a highly educated person, maybe your priest are those professors or those PhDs you listen to, or, or maybe you're a, a highly scientific person, and your priest are those medical doctors or those scientists that you listen to. Of course, there needs to be a lot of wisdom in this conversation, a lot of common sense, right? Like there's really good things about, about all of those. For example, the physician I've chosen, I've chosen him because I really trust him, right? And when I had COVID last year, he was phenomenal to help kind of walk me through this. However, we're placing our ultimate hopes in the wrong priest. 
for many of us, we can even worship people almost, like like the old idols, where we can put all this pressure on these people that, that they just can't bear. They're not going to be able to fulfill uh, the, the weight that we put on them. So who do you turn to for truth? Now, hear me. I'm, I'm not wanting to emphasize the insufficiency of present-day priests by, you know, comparing it to the sufficiency of Jesus as our priest in order to say, like, it's foolish to turn to any of those people. Like, it's, I, I think we should, even if we disagree with our politicians, I think we should respect them. We should listen to doctors. We should learn from our professors. But my point here is emphasizing the sufficiency of Jesus. He's a better priest. He's a better priest than all of us. He, he's one that we can turn to, even in an ultimate sense, for truth, for happiness, for wholeness. He's a better king than any politician. He's a better prophet than any professor. He's a better priest than any scientist. Jesus is a better priest than any of the Old Testament priests. And the reason being is his sacrifice was one and done. He didn't have to continue on making more and more sacrifices. So he's a better priest. Therefore, we should trust him. We should trust him for truth. We should trust him for wholeness. We should trust him for happiness and joy. Jesus has made this offering, this one and done offering. And as we're going to see today, that means he's now able to sit on his throne. He's seated, but his work is not done. His atoning work is done, but his sanctifying work is not done. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to believe Jesus' single sufficient sacrifice. Look with me at Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The author of Hebrews makes two contrasting points here between the Old Testament priest and Jesus. The first contrast is that Jesus made a single offering versus the repeated offerings or the continual offerings of the Old Testament priest. This is the first thing that we're supposed to see that his sacrifice was one and done. It was sufficient. But three questions. Why was his sacrifice one and done? Number two, what does it mean to really believe his sacrifice was sufficient? And then what are the present implications of all this for us? Okay, that's maybe thick or high theology, but okay, what what does that mean for us today? Well, why was his sacrifice one and done? If you remember from John 19, Jesus is on the cross, and we read about his very last statement that he said, his final words before he died. John 19, 28 to 30 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a, hip, uh, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. His sacrifice was one and done because his atoning work was finished. In that moment, everything that he set out to accomplish was accomplished. It was complete. Hebrews 10, 12 says, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He doesn't need to die again for all the sins that came after. He doesn't need to die again for his people who came afterwards. And even today, he doesn't need to die again for the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow. It was so sufficient, it covered all of that. 
There's going to be someone born today that by God's grace will become a Christian at some point in their lives. And that he has died even for those people. He's died for all of his people who are to come even into the future. It was complete and it was finished. But what does it really mean to believe that his sacrifice was sufficient? Like that's thick theology again in some ways. That, that can be theorized and we can just leave it in that kind of speculative realm. But, but what does it mean to really believe? Well, it means that you're no longer trying to be your own priest. You're no longer trying to live this relationship with God where, okay, if I do everything right, then he's happy with me. Oh, oh, I, I messed up again. Well, man, he, he must be mad at me and I've got to do more good things in order to kind of get, you know, the, everything balanced out right with him. You're not the priest. He's the priest. He's taking care of that for you. It also means you're not supposed to turn to other priests for truth and for wholeness and for happiness. You're not supposed to go outside of Christ, all these other places, to find identity and fulfillment and joy. You're going to find it in Him. He's where it is. And all this means that you're supposed to accept His grace. And you're supposed to accept His grace again and again and again. Because He continues to pour it out again and again and again. Because it's complete. And so as you sin again tomorrow, maybe in ways that you've struggled for years, and you sin again tomorrow, because it's one and done, He meets us there. And we're to accept His grace. That's how we turn these truths and take them out of theory and put them into practice. When we fail again, after years of battling that struggle, you can walk forward in peace and hope, knowing that his sacrifice was sufficient to cover that sin again and again and again. The implications. Well, the implications are is that we are to trust him. We're to turn to him for it to be made right with him, to be made whole, to be made happy. You see, turning to him, turning to that priest is how you're squared away with God, how you're right with him. There's a way to be right with him, to have this relationship that remains, remains into eternity, meaning your ticket into heaven is found here. It's because of what he's done once and for all. This is how you can be right with him. However, the good news even gets better because it's also how you can find wholeness in those moments where your souls are unsettled or burdened. It's going back to this completed work on the cross is how you unburden your soul and how you find peace again. Maybe you struggle with bitterness over wrongs done to you. Maybe you're filled with anxiety over the future, but Jesus' one and done sacrifice is where you can find that wholeness for your troubled souls. But finally, his sufficient sacrifice means that he is where we can find true happiness. Circumstances of life go up and down, right? You got wins, you got losses, hard days, good days. Jesus is with us solid all the way through. There's a way to be joyful and hopeful about the future, even if the circumstances are not going your way. Do you believe Jesus' sacrifice is complete? These, call, these verses call us to believe, and it's a call to believe it ultimately and eternally, as well as to believe it through every single problem you face. Picture in your mind for a moment. What's the greatest challenge that you're facing right now? How does the fact that Jesus has completed his work on the cross, how does that help you walk through that? The second, I think, charge here is to change because Jesus is sitting. The second contrast here between the Old Testament priests is that Jesus, his first one is his sacrifice was one and done. They're having to make continual sacrifices. The second one is, is they're standing and he's sitting. He's sitting it means that uh, his job is, is complete. His sacrifice was sufficient. But what can we learn from that? And, and again, why does it even matter that he was sitting? Well, I think three key things here. Number one, Jesus is sitting rather than standing.
because his work is done. But that means we're supposed to believe him. Remember John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him and not perish, but have eternal life. You see, we can believe that. We can believe those gospel truths because he's sitting. It's, it's all true because he's accomplished what he set out to accomplish. So we can turn to him for truth. We can turn to him for these gospel truths because he's sitting. That's why we can trust him. We can trust him with all the gospel truths that, that come from that moment and that come from that John 3.16 promise. We can trust all of those promises. Second, Jesus is sitting rather than standing because he's exalted. And this means we're to worship him. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We find joy in him because he's sitting. Because Jesus is sitting and because he sits down, it means that he's on a throne, he's highly exalted, and as we just sang, we now are called to celebrate him as a result of it. Worship is the great implication of this. Because he's highly exalted, we can find joy via worshiping him. But number three, Jesus is sitting rather than standing because he's confidently ministering. This means that we can rest in him. We can rest in the ways that he's ministering to us. He ministers to us in this confident way. You see, he's not sitting up there because he's tired or because he's anxious about anything. He's sitting up there because he's confident in what he's done. And the ministry that now comes that follows from that, he does that from this confident position. John 15 uh, talks about abiding in Christ. Verses 4 and 5 say, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, this highlights that it's in him that we find fulfillment. It's in him that we find spiritual growth. Because he's highly exalted and because he's sitting on that throne, we can confidently receive that ministering that he's continuing to do with us. We can turn to him, we can abide in him, we can be connected in him, and we can rest in all of that, and that's how we spiritually grow. We can find fulfillment and growth in him. So unlike the Old Testament priest, he is, uh, his sacrifice was one and done, and he's sitting rather than standing, and that leads us to this place where we can trust him for truth, we can trust him for joy, we can trust him for wholeness. We're called to turn to him. But how does his sitting change us? Does pondering his sitting leads you to trust him in greater ways. Does reflecting upon all this, does this make you a more passionate worshiper of Christ? As you think on these things and you ponder all this, does this call you to and draw you into abide in him and find that spiritual growth and maturity as a result of walking with him? How does his sitting change you today? 13 and 14 give these two final implications of his sitting. He's doing two things patiently. He's patiently waiting, and he's patiently perfecting. The first one in verse 13 calls us to trust his timing. Look again at verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. Verse 13 explains that he's sitting, and as a result, he's waiting. But again, he, he, he's not anxious in this, right? He, he's not unsure about the future. 
He's comfortable. He's comfortably waiting. He's relaxed, if you will. He's, he's patiently, if you want to think of it that way, he's patiently waiting for the right time. Well, waiting for what? He, he's waiting here. He's patiently waiting to subdue his enemies. At the right time, he's going to return, and he's going to make everything as it should be, meaning he's going to subdue his enemies. All those enemies of God, those God-haters, all that injustice that's out there, he's going to subdue all of it. He's going to make all of it right. He's going to line it up in the way it's supposed to be lined up. Ultimately, he's going to win. This is the promise here. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God of the Father, after destroying every ruler and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Bible promises that he will subdue all things. He will make all things right. And if that's true, the call is that we're supposed to trust his timing. This is all going to happen in his timing. He sees the injustice. He, he, he knows what that person did to you. And he's going to make it right. But he's not going to make it right in your timing. He's going to make it right in his timing. Therefore, we're supposed to trust his timing. Justice is coming, in other words. He's going to make things as they should be. You might not find relief from that grief or that struggle today, but, but it's going, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where it's all made right. He will subdue his enemies, and our job is to trust his timing. Now, I get to this point, and I ask, why? Well, man, why didn't you come yesterday? Kingdom of God sounds great to me. What are you waiting for? Like, why, are you, why is it taking so long? The answer is mercy. You see, mercy is why Jesus is waiting. There's, there's a long suffering to this. Like he mercifully is waiting for that right time. What he's doing is he's giving people more time to repent and believe. And, and, if, and if that's true, if he, if he is graciously waiting, then trusting his timing includes participating in gospel ministry today. It, it includes engaging in things today while we have time to engage it today. So there's injustices to address. There's evangelistic conversations we're supposed to have. There's reconciliation that we're supposed to, to pursue. Time will run out on all those things. Jesus is patiently waiting. He, he's giving us mercy in his waiting, and we're to trust his timing by proclaiming the gospel. But I think there's one more thing to trust. Look at verse 14, and I think this is called a trust his will. Verse 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, he's this better priest. He's made this one and done sacrifice. He is sitting instead of standing. And as a result of that, we, he is highly exalted. We're to worship him. We're to trust him for all these things. We're to, we're to turn to him for hope and happiness. But this doesn't mean that his ministry has stopped. Like he's still ministering. He's ministering from that seated throne. Verse 14 explains that he, is seating, that he is sitting patiently perfecting. You see, his atoning ministry is complete, but that just opens the door to an ongoing sanctifying ministry in your life. He's continuing to minister today. His ministry is not done. Jesus is never done with you. He's now seated on that throne, continuing to shower you with grace. He, he can, he's always conforming. He's always enlightening. He's always building up. He's always making you look increasingly like Jesus. Romans eight twenty nine says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 
Why? To be conformed to the image of his son. This means that God's plan for you is to make you look more like Jesus. You see, he wants you uh, to love like Jesus loved. He wants you to increasingly forgive people the way he forgave people. He wants you to have the convictions that he has. He wants you to have the compassion that he has. His plan for you, sticking closer to Romans 8, his destiny for you is to conform you into the image of Jesus. That's what he's doing right now as he's sitting on that throne. It's kind of like he is patiently and intentionally just chipping away all those un-Jesus-like things about you. He's like this patient sculptor just chipping away all these little things that are not like Jesus in your life. Now, we can, we can fight back at him. We can kick. We can scream. But he's just going to continue to chip away. I, I chased this image maybe a little too much this week. But did you know that uh, the um, uh, Mount Rushmore took 14 years to finish? 14 years. In, in Brazil, that, that great sculpture of, of Christ the Redeemer, that, that took nine years to finish that. What, what, what patience, what perseverance. Jesus has, he, he has been doing this since creation. He's been doing this since you were born, and he's going to continue on doing it until you die and then into eternity. He has, he has patience in this. He's a, he's a patient sculptor. Every day he's chipping away those little bit, a little bit more and a little bit more. So today maybe he's chipping away at that love of money. Tomorrow maybe he's chipping away at that lack of trust or that lack of hope in him. Maybe next week he's going to start chipping away at that lack of forgiveness that you're bitterly holding on to about how someone wronged you. His atoning work is done so that he can now have this perfecting ministry with you. He's never done with you. He sacrificed himself so that he can take up this sculpting tools and shape you into the image of Christ. Further, he's patient, especially when we fail. We tend to think that God will abandon us when we fail, right? Like that's the way all of our other conditional relationships work in our lives. We don't meet the goal, we get fired. We're not as good of a friend, and then all of a sudden that friend is is gone. But that's not our relationship with God. You see, he does all of this for those moments when you fail. He he does all of that uh, so that when we fail, he is still going to be there with us. That sacrifice covered all of that. He's helping you grow spiritually, and and that has been his will from eternity past, is to help you grow. That way that you fail tomorrow, he knew that from eternity past, and he's predestined you in such a way to take that moment and then chip away and try to perfect you in ways to make you look more like Christ. He's patiently perfecting you. This is his will, and do you trust his will? Trust his will with the greatest challenge you're facing right now. Again, ponder that, that thing that you're facing. Is that thing going to break you or make you? Well, the way it makes you is if you trust that what he's doing is he's sculpting you in that. He's taking that difficult thing in your life and sculpting you so that you look increasingly like Jesus. He's a patient sculptor perfecting you, and he's not going to give up. Jesus is a sitting priest because his atoning sacrificial work is done. It's complete And we have this relationship with him now that's based upon his completed work. And what's included in that is not only this high, exalted position to where we worship him, but also this present ministry of perfection. Therefore, it's a call to trust the sitting priest. There's a lot of priests in our our, our lives, and they promise all sorts of things. But Jesus is the one that we can truly trust. 
He's the one where we can find ultimate truth. He's the priest that we can turn to for true wholeness and happiness. Trust the sitting priest for eternal atonement. That's just a fancy way of saying turn to him for your eternal salvation. He's, where, he's the one you can turn to in order to be saved. He's the one you can turn to to find forgiveness for your sins. He's the one that you can turn to in order to be made right with God for eternity. He's a sitting priest, and we can trust him with our eternity. But also, I think this is a call to trust the sitting priest for present help. He's in this posture of sitting, and he's doing that so he can presently minister to you. He can help you with all of your struggles that you walk through today. He offers grace when you fail. He still helps you. He's the source of all sorts of lasting joy. And the ways that you don't have that, he is the source of that, continuing to minister to you. We can also trust the sitting priest for present hope. In those dark moments, in those moments where we have pinned all of our hopes on something and it doesn't work out, we don't get the grade, we don't get the job, we don't get the spouse that maybe we wanted. In those moments where it all seems hopeless, he is offering present hope. He's still with you in all of it. He's still continuing to minister to make you look more like Christ on your way to heaven. Finally, trusting the present priest is trusting him for present perfecting. He's the one who still ministers. How do you need to grow today? What challenge are you facing that, that he is taking that sculpting tool and conforming you into the image of Christ. How do you need to grow today? He's committed to chipping away at those imperfections. He's with you in all of it. He's not surprised by it. He's not necessarily disappointed in it. He's, he's with you. He's there in it. He knows it's going to happen. Our job is to accept it and embrace it. Trust that the sitting priest is patiently persisting in his work to make you look more like Jesus, no matter how hard it gets and no matter how far you fall. I think there's something really powerful about this, this image of Jesus sitting, isn't it? There, there's a comfort to it, right? Uh, recently, I've been moving books out of the, the little room at our house that was my home office, and we now have an office here at the building, and so I've been moving books over, and I've been going slow in that because I probably have too many books, and because I'm just, I don't know, reminiscing on different things, and I came across a little booklet that we had uh, created at a previous church where I was overseeing small groups. And so, you know, kind of outlined what our small group ministry and what we were doing. And um, in that process, we kind of evaluated, I remember we evaluated the ministry and we really saw the importance of host homes. Like host homes are really important to a small group ministry. And so what we did is we found the best host homes. We said, okay, what makes you a great host home? And, and what we found is there were certain things that they were really intentional that they did in order to foster community, to, to make the, the place comfortable for people to, to walk in and share and be comfortable and, and just experience those friendships that transform us into Christ's image. And so we literally, uh, somebody threw out this idea of, hey, you know, it would kind of be helpful if we had like a, like a checklist. And maybe like you laminated it and like we threw it on the fridge to just kind of help us think through getting our house ready for the small group. I, I thought it was goofy, but like everybody really loved it. And so I found that laminated checklist of just kind of different things to do to get ready for the small group. But what we found was, is that some groups felt like a, felt like a museum. Like, like some, some of those houses you walked in it and it just kind of felt like a museum. Like it was pretty, but, but it was just stale. It, it wasn't comfortable. Do you remember, like, it's just like a 50s thing where people put, like, plastic over the couch, and you'd sit in and make that sound, and, you know, it, some of the houses felt like that, like, 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 there were all these nice things, 
but people were like scared because they were worried about breaking something or like they were really worried about their kids acting up and man, you know, would that make the hostess mad? And so it, it felt like a museum and so it just wasn't comfortable and, and thus people didn't really open up. But then there was a, another extreme that we wanted to avoid. It didn't feel like a museum, but it, the house was just a mess. Like we had some groups, and this is a harder conversation to have with people, like some of the host homes, they were just like a mess. Like you would have ladies that would come in after work and they're wearing professional attire. They want to sit down on the couch and they're kind of dodging dirty socks on the couch. Or maybe a guy's walking in and there's like dog toys that they're trying to, you know, get around everywhere. It, the house was just a mess and it had the same result. It didn't produce community. People didn't feel comfortable there because they were worried about kind of another extreme of things. We found if, if we could find some sort of happy medium on that. Then the house would, would feel comfortable. And if it felt comfortable, then people could open up and, and really experience community. They could, they could experience those relationships. There's something comfortable about Jesus' sitting ministry. I think there's something comfortable for him, and I think there's something comfortable for us about it, right? Like, like he has completed what he set out to complete. He's accomplished what needed to be accomplished. And as a result, we're right with him. We're right with him for eternity. We're accepted by him. He's not angry with us. The, the relationship is infinitely better as a result of this than the most comfortable relationship that you have. Maybe that's with a best friend or a spouse. No matter how comfortable that is, take it to infinity. That's the comfort level we now have with Christ. You can be real with him. You can vent with him. You, you can cry with him. You can hear hard truths from him because you know it's for his glory and for your good. You have that type of relationship with him that you know he is for you. And he's not just for you in the wins. He's for you in the failures. He's going to be serving and sanctifying you and doing it for the long haul, for, for eternity. He knows you are not perfect, but he's still with you, perfecting you. He's hanging with you in your imperfections. He's not going to get tired of you. How about that? He's not disappointed in you. He, he, uh, his once-for-all sacrifice means that he accepts you. We can sit comfortably with him. We can sit comfortably as he sculpts us, knowing it's for his glory and for our good and will ultimately lead to wholeness and rightness and joy. That's what he's doing today. Friends, we can easily uh, place our hopes in the wrong priest we can trust politicians to make everything right. We can trust scientists and doctors to make everything whole. We can trust other religions in order to find happiness. But Hebrews 10 is telling us that we have a sitting priest. We have one who has won and done, accomplished everything he set out to accomplish. The sacrifice has been made. We now have this right relationship. He's sitting because we have this right relationship with him. He's sitting because he is exalted and we can worship him. He's sitting because he's patiently waiting. He's waiting to make all things right. He's going to subdue all of his enemies. And he's patiently perfecting us. Friends, Hebrews 10 calls us to trust the sitting priest. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this glorious reality that you are sitting. That that work on the cross that you set out to do, you have done it. You have made us right with you. We rest in you for all good things. We turn to you. We hope in you. We trust in you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that has not 
turn to you in an ultimate way. That they haven't received the benefits and the blessings of that sacrifice, I pray today would be the day. I pray they would feel comfortable enough just to slip in the back and speak with one of our pastors or elders so that we can pray for them. Lord, each of us is facing some sort of challenge in our life. And that one and done sitting priest is continuing to minister to us. Even in our brokenness, even in our struggles, he's still with us. It's not conditional like our other relationships. You're with us in the highs and the lows. May we be a people that constantly turn to the city priest. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.